Anyone who's reflected for any length of time on life knows that anything worthwhile and meaningful takes a long time to accomplish. Uh, if you want to build a good marriage, especially a marriage that is built on biblical foundations, uh, it takes years and decades of uh, apologizing and giving and receiving forgiveness and learning all over again to do the right thing. And it does take decades for the self-centeredness to be flushed out and progressively replaced by the fruit of the Spirit. If you're raising children and we want to do more than just simply raise nice families, but we want to raise sons and daughters who are going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that takes at least a couple more decades. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the travel industry slogan which says, fly now and pay later. Parenting is pay now and you don't know where the plane is going to take off. You know. <laughs> Education takes a long time. 12 years of high school, 4 years of undergraduate school, and maybe more specialization after that. And then a commitment to lifelong learning. You want to become good at a musical instrument, and many of you have seen their skills. That takes hours and hours of practice and all kinds of lessons to do that. Same thing is true when it comes to specifically the Christian life, the whole matter of spiritual formation gradually being shaped into the image of Christ, developing a Christ-like character, learning humility, meekness and patience, the practice of spiritual disciplines, prayer and study, weekend worship. These things have to be maintained over decades before anything begins to really change within our lives. Ministry is exactly the same thing. Tim Keller, who's probably one of the best communicators today, <laughs> said to a young preacher, how long does it take for me to be a good preacher? He said, two to three hundred sermons as a minimum. You know. And he's not wrong. Uh, pastors have to be in a place at least six to seven years before the congregation begins to trust them enough to actually follow their leadership. Our international workers, especially working in difficult parts of the world, have to sometimes give a whole lifetime and see no fruit at all. The people who are called to pray with them, give for them, encourage and refresh them are needed to hang in there for all that time. Not too long ago I was talking to an international worker who was just lamenting the fact that people who were initially there to support them within a couple of years lost all their interest. And to make matters even more difficult we have to pull off this uh, kind of perseverance in a society that is given to instant gratification. Eugene Peterson in a book of the same title uh, quoted Friedrich Nietzsche, the German nihilist philosopher, who in a moment of rare insight said this. The essential thing is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. But it is precisely this long obedience in the same direction that the current mood of society discourages. That's why we spent eight weeks to learn one lesson. Can you say that with me now, please? We cannot persevere in the Christian life. Fixing our thoughts on the person and work of Jesus, right? Okay, one more time. We cannot persevere. Right. To pull off this long obedience in the same direction, it requires that focus on Jesus. And for eight weeks, we've been slowly working our way through this book of the Bible that is given to do precisely that. Sharpen our focus on the person of Jesus. Who is the radiance of the Father's glory. The exact imprint of His character. Who is at the beginning of all things. Sustains all things. Who is heir of all things. Who is eternal and unchanging. Who loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Who is anointed with the oil of gladness. He is greater than the prophets and angels and Moses and Aaron and Joshua. As our high priest we have been focusing on Him for three weeks. He 
forgives our sins, gives us mercy when we have sinned. He helps us in our struggles, in our temptations. By the power of an endless life and an indestructible priesthood, He is continually praying to the Father for us, saving us completely. He becomes the guarantor of a new covenant. He writes the law of God upon our hearts and internalizes God's law so that it doesn't become oppressive but a delight. And then last week he learned that he mediates a new covenant, all the blessings of that covenant. He frees us from a guilty conscience and frees us to worship and serve the living God and thus become alive ourselves. Today as we finish this series, I want to focus on one more dimension of Jesus' person and work. One more dimension of drawing near to him and in some ways this is the most crucial of them all because without this one I'm not sure we'll do all those other one-liners that we've talked about. We're only going to look at two verses from Hebrews chapter 12 where every phrase of these two verses are crucial and as I unpack them gradually I want you to follow me because this sermon is basically going to develop step by step and I don't want you to drop off the sequence at any point. Therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The central exhortation is to run with endurance the race that is set before us or the race that is marked out for us. When athletes in any track and field event line up, we, they know where the starting point is, they know where they have to get to, and they know the exact track that is marked out for them. They can't cross the track, they will be disqualified. It suggests to us that in the Christian life, while all of us are called to run with endurance, the race is not the same for everybody. Each one of us has a unique particular race that has been marked out for us. The second thing that this text tells us is that this race... Uh, uh, embraces all of life the, therefore relates to chapter 11 chapter 11 as many of you who know Hebrews knows is the great faith chapter in the Bible it is a story of many Old Testament men and women who have lived a life of faith and if you look at that chapter you will find that that faith is expressed in the spectacular and the ordinary it is faith for worshipping the right way it is faith for responding to the warnings of God it is faith to just walk every day faithfully raising sons and daughters it is faith for adventure leaving the familiar to go to the unfamiliar just on the basis of God's word it is faith to bless the next generation and transmit that faith faithfully it is faith to make difficult uh, decisions and identify with God's people rather than pleasure and and accept suffering it is faith to fight spiritual battles with the weapons of warfare that God says they are not human weapons it is faith to defeat uh, turn weakness into strength through faith it is faith to sometimes endure persecution and it is faith to sometimes escape persecution every dimension of life is covered by this that is a race that is set for us that's the first thing we learn from this text and in order to run that race we are told to look to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of faith. That opening section we said therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Sometimes it's misunderstood to mean that we are like an athlete in an, in an arena. And all these people from Hebrews chapter 11 who have accomplished this great life of faith. Are all watching us and therefore we need to perform. That puts pressure on us. That's really not what witness means in this case. The word witness is used in a different way. They are not an audience watching us. They are bearing testimony to us that God is faithful. They are bearing testimony to us that God can be trusted. Because every person in Hebrews chapter 11 is asked by God to do something that doesn't make sense in visible reality. 
And therefore they have to trust what God says as a revelation of invisible reality. Every one of them has learned this one lesson that behind visible reality there lies an invisible reality whose nature is revealed in the word of God and which holds a clue to understanding visible reality. And therefore we need to work in visible reality in response to God's word. That is what they bear. They've lived lives like that with all of their shortcomings. And they say, that's the way you need to live. We are here to testify. It's the way to live. That's the kind of faith you need. That's the way in which they are witnesses. And we will not be able to pull off this call to have a long obedience in the same direction without that kind of faith. We too need to be persuaded that behind visible reality there's an invisible reality. And God's word reveals that. It is only that conviction. That's why we have to look to Jesus who's the author and perfecter of faith. Because these men and women who are witnessing that to us don't have the power to give us that faith. If you read their stories in the Old Testament, they were not plaster saints. They were people like you and me. They lived it that way. They have no power to impart that faith. Only Jesus has the power to do that. And so we need to look to Jesus. Understanding the nature of faith that these people are witnessing to. We need to look to Jesus to be able to run the race with perseverance. We need the faith that only Jesus can give us. He is the founder and perfecter. The word founder means pioneer. The first person to do it. A trailblazer. It also means one who creates and initiates. And is the perfecter. The one who matures. Jesus alone can create faith. And Jesus alone can mature faith within us. You tracking with me so far? Okay next question. It's not just faith in general. It's not faith as a vague element. Exactly what is the content of the faith that Jesus is going to teach us that we need in order to run the race with perseverance. And it tells us, he says, looking to Jesus, the author and founder of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had a race to run as well. He had a race that was set before him and that obedience to that race took him all the way to the cross. And the cross was an instrument of shame. Not just pain, but shame. It was devised by the Romans for the lowest of the lowest of criminals in Roman society. They were crucified naked. And they were held up for open shame. Often mocked by people who passed by. You have to think of the last seven weeks what we've learned about Jesus. And say, that Jesus was crucified. I mean, the, the, the degradation and the shame, the creator of the universe, this glorious person that we've been focusing on, to be open to public shame like that. That was the condescension of the cross. And he was mocked. They threw his words back at him and mocked him as prophet. They put a crown of thorns upon him, a purple robe, and bowed in mockery before him, put a sign over the cross saying, King of the Jews, and they mocked him as king. And then they mocked him as priest and they said, you were going to save other people, you can't even save yourself. Come down from the cross and then we will believe you. He was mocked as prophet, he was mocked as priest, he was mocked as king. The mocking and the shame were colossal and yet it says, Jesus despised them. The word despise here means discounted. Oh, that's nothing. We might pretend, he wasn't pretending. What enabled Jesus to take something that was infinite in its capacity? The mockery and the pain and say, that was nothing. What enabled him to count that as nothing and therefore endure it was that he looked to the joy that was on the other side of the cross. And there was a threefold joy that Jesus looked. First and foremost, it was the joy of reunion with the Father and his restoration to glory. That's what he prayed for in John 17. Lord, 
Give me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Secondly, it was also the joy of bringing many sons and daughters with him into that glory. Because in John 17, before he went to the cross, he said, Father, I want them to be with me where I am so they might see my glory. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, which you didn't take a look at in the short run through, tells us that the part of his joy was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And thirdly, the joy of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. All this magnificent work of Jesus as our high priest that we've looked at for the last three weeks, isn't something he does reluctantly. He does it joyfully. This is part of his joy. That's how he completes us. That's how he saves us to the uttermost. It was this threefold joy that Jesus had faith in. That was all invisible. He too had to live on the basis of invisible reality so that he could endure the cross in visible reality and continue that obedience. So it's not faith in general. It's that unique kind of faith that in the midst of trial and difficulty is able to look to the future joy and bring that joy into the present and therefore is able to continue. That's the kind of faith that you and I need in order to pull off this long obedience in the same direction. I don't know who came up with this phrase first. It was an English Puritan, I think. He called it this principle, the expulsive power of a competing affection. And the interesting thing is, we live by that every day of our lives in every other area except in our Christian faith. Some of us who are a little bit older maybe remember Perry Mason you know, the, and the TV show by that name. And the man who acted as Perry Mason was Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr was a tall, slender man, at least in the Perry Mason movies. Near the end of his life, he acted as Chief Ironside, the guy who was held to a wheelchair. And he was a big, hefty guy. Apparently, when Raymond Burr first went to audition for his role as Perry Mason, he was 80 pounds too heavy. And the producer said, we'll give you the role of Lieutenant Trag. We can't give you Perry Mason's role. But he wanted it so badly, he lost 80 pounds in three months. Now, what enabled this man to do that? Because there was something that he wanted really badly. It was the expulsive power of a competing affection that made the discipline of dieting easy. You and I know this to be true. We just are not aware of it. And we live every area of our, every time we, every area of our lives, we actually live like this. We just don't know it. Think of children outside playing. It's near dinner time. They're lost in their play. And you say, Johnny, Mary, come on home. For it's dinner time. No, I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. No, you better come home. So they come home grumbling and come to the back door, throw off their skates or whatever it is. And they sit down and they polish off two platefuls of food. They were hungry. They just didn't know it because the joy of playing the game was so big at that time. It wiped out all the other hunger. I've experienced that whenever I get a new program that I play with on my computer. I can go right through until I get that down. I forget all about lunch and dinner. Every one of you knows this. Teenagers, we find it difficult to wake them up to, to get to church, wake them up to get to school, and we conclude they have a discipline problem. They don't have a discipline problem because if there's a favorite rock band coming into town and they need to be up at 3 in the morning to get tickets, they are up at 3 in the morning. They don't have a discipline problem. It's a desire problem. There isn't a single person in this room who has a discipline problem. Don't ever say, I have a problem with discipline because you always do what you want to do. It is a desire problem deep down within. That's the central issue for us. That's why this principle of the expulsive power of a competing affection is so important. If we want something badly enough, the discipline required to get it is no problem at all. It's just that we don't apply that in the Christian life. <laughs> And we think everything in the Christian life has to do with this horrible thing called discipline when it has everything to do with desire. That's how Jesus endured the cross. Not by discipline, 
But by desire, he desired and knew the joy that was waiting for him. And so you and I need exactly that expulsive power of a competing infection. This is one more dimension of drawing near to Jesus. Drawing near to him that we might learn this kind of faith from him. So it becomes very important for us to answer the next question which is how did Jesus keep his focus upon the joy? That he did we now understand. How it works we now understand. But how did Jesus keep his eyes on the future joy so clearly? Because that's what he's going to teach us. Remember one of the things we learned is God cannot help us except by giving us what he himself has. And so God became a man. Jesus as a human being learned to live life this way. Enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. This is where the relationship of Jesus to the scriptures become crucial. Jesus had a mind and a heart that was completely saturated with the word of God. He quoted from Genesis, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from the Psalms. All throughout his ministry. Right after the beginning of his ministry was announced, he was tempted by the devil where he, like us, learned how to be tempted without guilt. We looked at that several weeks ago. His response to the devil in every case was, it stands written, it stands written, it stands written. He responded by the word of God. And then after his resurrection on that first Easter morning, when there were those two disciples who were all confused because they couldn't find the body of Jesus, were talking to one another, Jesus joins himself to them, they don't know that it is Jesus, and they say, oh, you know, we had this great prophet who was doing amazing things, we hoped he was the long-awaited Messiah, but now it's the third day and we don't know where his body is, and Jesus kind of speaks to them and he says, look, you're foolish and slow of heart to believe, didn't you know that the Christ had to suffer to enter into his glory? And then from Moses to the prophets, meaning the entire Old Testament, he unlocked this principle for them. The entire Bible was for Jesus, a driving home of this message, the Messiah had to suffer in order to enter into his glory. It was his understanding of scripture as a divine script for his life that enabled him to see so clearly there is joy at the end of this suffering. There is joy at the end of this suffering. And what all of scripture built into him, also we can see specific scripture, how it worked at crucial times in his life. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Psalm 16 verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David wrote this psalm thousand years before Jesus. And yet by the time of Jesus this psalm was recognized as a messianic psalm. That was really speaking about Messiah. And so Jesus who knew the psalms well and prayed them well. Understood the psalm as saying that yeah I'm going to die on the cross. But it won't be the last word. God will not let his Holy One see corruption. He will not decay. No, you're showing him the pathway of life. And that path is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so as Jesus anticipated the cross, he also anticipated the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Now, of course, as he continued that obedience, the suffering reached its apex on the cross in those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me experiencing the depth and the quintessence of hell absolute abandonment by God now many of us know as Christians that uh, that also comes from a psalm Psalm 22 the opening verse of that psalm what we may not know is how that psalm ends the first 21 verses of that psalm which begins with my God my God why have you forsaken me is a 
excruciating description of the pain of a man and the shame of a man who's been crucified. But in the 22nd verse, there is a sudden change in mood. Listen to some of these quotes from a few of the verses. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Somehow Jesus was, this Psalm 22 which begins with the agonies of the crucifixion ends with worldwide praise now and future generations praising him. So the Jesus who knew that the opening words of that psalm was being fulfilled in the crucifixion also knew that the end would be fulfilled. The joy that was set before him. So how did Jesus get the faith that enabled him to focus on the joy that was set before him so he could endure the cross? Through the scriptures. Both the general tenor of scriptures that said Messiah must suffer before he enters into glory but also these specific portions of scripture like Psalm 16 and like Psalm 22. So now we have our journey that we've taken today full. So let me just unpack each step of that for you. We began with by saying the Christian life requires a long obedience in the same direction. Okay, that's where we started. What was the next thing we learned? The only thing that will sustain us is the expulsive power of a new affection. Thirdly, therefore we need faith that a greater joy lies at the end of the journey of obedience to God. Fourthly, it was precisely this kind of faith in future joy that Jesus learned as a human being which enabled him to carry his obedience all the way to the cross. Fifthly, as our faithful high priest, he now initiates and matures that kind of faith within us. And finally, Jesus was able to keep the future joy in sharp focus by immersion in God's word. So that's the logic. You follow me so far? That's the journey we've taken. So here's our one-liner for today. Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, let us draw near to him with an open Bible. So can you say that with me? Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, let us draw near to him with an open Bible. One more time. Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, let us draw near to him with an open Bible. So that when a long obedience in the same direction becomes difficult, we will be able to focus on that future joy and bring that into the present and continue to endure. As this becomes a habit in our lives, two things will begin to happen. First of all, we also will begin to get a sense of the tenor of scripture as a whole. This is why I encourage us to read through all of the Bible regularly. It is a divine script, not just for Jesus, but for all of us. And for every one of us, the theme is the same. We enter into glory through suffering. Now, the suffering is not equally distributed. Just like the race is not the same. The race has been marked out for us. Pastor Allen has a lot more suffering in his life than I do. Our persecuted church have even more suffering than he does. But all of us, in long obedience in the same direction, is a call to lose our lives every day in some mostly in small ways it's much easier to die once than to die daily you know but secondly there will also be individual scriptures that will become alive like psalm 16 and like psalm that right in the crucible of the testing will come to our rescue and enable us to let me give you a couple of illustrations one from my life and one one from a, uh, a testimony that came to me yesterday morning unsought and i have the individual's permission to share that with you Here's a verse of scripture. Ask me. 
Uh, you might be surprised at first at what part of my life I'm looking at, but you'll see why soon. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is talking about a long obedience in the same direction when it comes to marriage. But he links that so that your prayers may not be, un- may, may not, may not be hindered. So this verse for a husband, ties his call to love his wife and dwell with her in understanding and honor and together be heirs of the grace of life to the fact that his prayers would not be hindered. There are many things that I pray for which if answered would give me great joy. I pray for my six grandchildren. I don't just pray that they will have a comfortable life. I pray mostly for a double portion of the Holy Spirit upon them because they're going to grow up in a world and live out their Christian life in a world that is much more hostile to faith than I do. So I pray for a double, not just for them, but the whole next generation I pray for. But I pray for those six grandchildren by name every day. And if that prayer would be answered 10, 15, 20 years from now as they continue to grow, it would give me unbelievable joy, more than any other thing in my life. I also pray for this church. I pray every Sunday morning when I come into this pulpit that I will have the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon me so that my words will have power. Not that you will be impressed with me, but that you will fall in love with Jesus. And there will be a whole congregation that is moving ahead in this kind of radical obedience in every dimension of life. That would give me great joy. I pray for our international workers. I pray that unreached people groups will come to know Jesus as Savior and churches will be planted. So every time I hear stories like that from our international workers, I have great joy in my heart. These three things put together give me a tremendous amount of joy and God says, they ain't going to happen if you don't love your wife. There isn't a verse like that for wives, by the way. I thought that was unfair. (laughs) But seriously, seriously, this is the future joy that gives present to be nice. Just a minute, this doesn't sound very honoring to your wife that you need motives like this to love her. Well, let me tell you, I told you this earlier on, marriage is a unique thing. John Piper said it when he was talking about his own marriage. He said, all sins are ultimately relational and find some of their worst expression within marriage. The reason for that is marriage has been designed by God for that purpose. It has been designed by God as a challenge to radical self-centeredness. Nothing exposes our selfishness like marriage does, which is um, provided you're committed to the same person. That's why most people don't. If you are, you're going to continually be challenged by that. You're going to be called to die daily, lose your life every day, mostly in small ways. And so God says, there's joy at the end of this. Two ways. First of all, not only prayers be answered. By the way, if you guys aren't praying for any big things that give you joy, this is going to work for you. It's only going to work if your prayers are about things that are really going to give you joy if they're answered. But it illustrates the purpose anyway. Say, in another way, it worked directly on marriage as well. Because, as we have learned, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, heaven is not disconnected from earth. The things that we are doing in this world will find their full expression in the world to come. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain, says Jesus, says Paul at the end of that chapter in Resurrection. Which means all the work that you put into developing a marriage, all the work that we put into learning to love our spouses like Christ loved the church, respecting, loving and honoring, not a single one of that labor is going to be wasted. If one of the characteristics of heaven is a community of love, who do you think I'm going to have the greatest relationship of intimacy with. It won't be like marriage here. Jesus said that very clearly. But it's only a preparation for something much greater. So in both cases, it is a joy that is on the other side. 
that enables us to pull off the long obedience in the same direction. That's how, one example of how that works in my life. Here's the example that came from, from an individual in the congregation, and I have that permission to share this. It had been a wonderful week. They wrote this yesterday morning. It had been a wonderful week. I woke up early every morning to spend time with God. I was conscious of going before God with my shortcomings to confess them before they took root. And I was joyful. I was looking forward to coming this Sunday morning with my heart prepared to worship. But last night two friends came to visit my emotions and my hormones. They were unwanted guests who took a seat in my heart and plagued me with feelings of doubt, anxiety and depression in general. I couldn't sleep. I was a mess. Saturday morning I woke up not feeling any better. But I decided to come and sit at God's feet the way I am. I thought, this is a good time to see if God hears me and knows my pain and doubts and will help me like he seems to help Pastor Sundar. And how he did. I started slowly with a few songs and then started doing what I usually do. I went to my daily prayer from a Christian blog for wives and there it was, Romans chapter 5 verses 3 to 5. God encouraging me to rejoice in my sufferings because in the end it produces hope. There it is. Future joy, present obedience. Instantly it gladdened my heart to know that God has poured out his love in me already by the Holy Spirit. My spirit is lifted, my heart gladdened and I have shown the door to my unwanted guests. You were right, it does work. I woke up hesitant to worship and now I am looking forward to the services. Drawing near, that's what it's all about. Future joy, enabling present obedience in difficult circumstances. Now, some of you have been observant and tracking through this whole message, saying there's one, fra- one phrase in the text that you read for us that you haven't said anything about, so let's go back to that for a minute. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We've talked enough about sin in this series. I want to talk about weights for a minute. You go back to our athletic imagery, you know that before the race starts, all these guys are decked out in their track suits, they're all you know, limbering up like this and whatnot. But then comes the call and they go to the starting blocks. Do they all go to their starting blocks with their track suits still on? That'd be ridiculous, right? Be flapping all over the place, they'll, they'll lose, they won't come anywhere near records. No, no, then they strip off. As, lo- as far as modesty and the laws of the land will allow, they strip down, you know. Because they want to shed every weight possible to be able to run the race. That's the imagery that, that the author to Hebrews has. He says, in this long obedience in the same direction, the positive thing is huge. You have to look to Jesus. You have to look to Him for the faith. Specifically the faith that goes past the present endurance to the future joy and bring that into the present. But at the same time, there's weights in your life that you've got to get rid of. Weights are not things that are bad. They just don't help. The good is often the enemy of the best for you and me. Our choice is not mostly between bad and good, but between the good and the best. Here's some examples. Sometimes it's our hobbies. There used to be a guy here many years ago. He's long gone from our church. He was practically gone the whole summer because he sailed. Sailing was his hobby and it took him out of church for six months. Entertainment. Twitter, Facebook. I think Piper it was who observed, he says that one of the best uses of Twitter and Facebook on Judgment Day will be to prove to us that prayerlessness was not due to lack of time. Possessions. A one-liner that I picked up many years ago that has helped me is this. Everything we own ends up owning a little bit of us. Everything we own ends up owning a little bit of us. And so if, you, if your life is stuffed with lots of things that you own, you're owned. You're not free anymore. 
And then most than, more than anything else, relationships. Probably nothing bogs us down in our ability to run the race with perseverance and maintain a long obedience in the same direction than the relationships in our life. This is why the person we marry probably has the f- biggest influence on whether we are able to pull off this thing than any, almost anything else. And if we're not married, the key relationships in our life. Now in all of these cases, the question to ask is not what's wrong with this. That teenagers ask that question. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? No, start asking what's right with this. Judge and evaluate everything in the light of this question. Will this help me run the race with perseverance? Will this help me pull off this long obedience in the same direction? Will this help me focus on future joy that I need to bring into present endurance to be able to continue to pull it off? This past Wednesday, I attended a funeral. The lady who passed away was over 100 years old. She was a faithful follower of Jesus. Reading by the obituary, I could tell that. There was someone who had lived a long obedience in the same direction. Two of her grandsons were involved in, in, in the service. The first one read the scriptures and he, and he uh, introduced him that by saying this. He said, since most of my memories of my grandmother are with her and the scriptures. I, I didn't really pay much attention to the scriptures because I was transfixed by that word. I thought, oh, isn't that amazing? Most of his memories of his grandmother with her and the Bible. Then the other grandson came, who was going to give a tribute along with his sister. And he said, my introduction to Christianity wasn't in church, he said. I just sat, so I would sit with my grandmother after I came back from school. And she would sing these songs of faith. And then she would dive into the Bible. That metaphor gripped my heart again. I didn't hear much of what he said after that. Because my mind went to my grandchildren, went to my funeral. And I said, wow. Wouldn't it be great if there were six of them that could say something like that? Most of my memories of grandpa are with him in his Bible. And that he was just diving into the scriptures. That I came back with a lot of joy from that funeral. Because that was the future joy that had fired me up all over again for present obedience. Listen, what would happen to the next generation in this church if every one of us lived like that? If we would draw near to Jesus... With an open Bible. Why? Can you tell me one more time? Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us draw near to Jesus with an open Bible. Last evening, as we worshipped through these same songs, a conviction began to form, which I used to shape my benediction. And this morning, as I drew near to God with an open Bible, that just conviction got strengthened even more. You know, all of us to to a greater or lesser extent are affected by our past. Some in small ways, some in large ways. It's often like a long arm from the past that keeps tripping us up in our present obedience. And and the sense that I had last night was confirmed this morning is that as you have worshipped Jesus, as he has been magnified, that you are being freed from some of those things. And so my blessing for you is that he will give you eyes to be able to see and a faith to anticipate that freedom in the days and the weeks to come. Go in Jesus' name.